Um, mindfulness to me is taking a second, even during a really busy time um, in your day, and acknowledging the people around you, acknowledging your breath, acknowledging even your temperature. You just feel your, your arm and how warm you are. Acknowledging how your back feels, stretching out, sitting up straight. You know, it's stuff just that's super simple <laughs> to do, but I think in practice during a really busy day, it's, it's hard to think about yourself. It's hard to put yourself first. I know there's like a lot of you should like love yourself and you should you should feel loved and your body is perfect and I do think that's like an important message to send but I think it's also very tough for a lot of people. Um, so what I've done is I've tried to instead of trying to take that big leap from I hate what I look like to I love and I like ideal that's my ideal body is what I look like right now. Instead what I do is just say like I have a body and my body does these things for me. I think it's really important to remember you should never be your friend's therapist. So we always want to be supportive, we always want to help, but if it gets to the level of, you know, everyone being an armchair therapist, that's when it's best to, to turn to some professional support. Welcome to Figuring It Out. I'm Ashley Garrison. And welcome to part two of the mental health series. I'm 21, I'm a senior at Columbia, and I'm figuring things out. This podcast is for everyone out there who, like me, is just trying to get their lives together. In each episode, I'll be interviewing some peers about things like college, friendships, work, and more. I hope you'll join me so we can figure things out together. And now, let's get into today's episode. In part one of the mental health series, I talked with my guests about everything from academic stress to panic attacks to social anxiety. In part two, we're going to talk about mindfulness, eating disorders, and some other things. Similar to part one, the young people will tell their stories, and then you'll hear from psychologist and Yale professor Dr. Arielle Baskin-Somers. I hope you enjoy part two. Here it is. My name is Charnath Bhatti. I am 19, turning 20 this year, and I'm a student at the University of Michigan. Um, I'm primarily studying business, but I'm interested in so many other things beyond that. So the first question that I've been asking pretty much everyone just to kick things off is what strong mental health means to them in practice on a day-to-day -day basis. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot. So yeah, what does that mean to you? I think strong mental health can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people, right? So personally, I think a more general way to approach mental health is just to be in touch with yourself and what works for you. So for some people, mental health can manifest in the form of physical health, and that can just be going on a run every single day or taking an hour to dance a little like me. But for other people, it might take a little bit more attention out of their day. So it might be something that they have to be actively aware of. So if I'm not feeling as great, maybe I fit a meditation time into my day, or maybe I put my phone away for a little while. Um, so in that sense, I think mental health can be like very, very broadly defined. But I think it's important for us to recognize that strong mental health comes when we know what works best for us. And like when we can feel our energy lo levels dipping or our interest in things declining. Um, so just being very aware of both your mind and body. And I was also curious to know how your mental health was affected or changed when you went to college. Cause I know for me, everything was just different. There were a lot of changes. And in some ways I had more time because I was by myself and on my own schedule, but then in other ways I had less time because I was very busy. So yeah, I was just curious about what that was like for you. Yeah. So the switch to college was definitely um, a big one for my mental health. And I I think that I went in kind of thinking that it would be something that I could still like 
not keep as much of an eye on, um, but I had to be very much aware of it, especially the first semester of my freshman year, because I realized that for me, I've lived my whole life in the same city. Um, I've grown up there. I've gone to school there and I've been surrounded by all the same people. So going to even just a university an hour away in a different place, not constantly having my family and my friends to kind of fall back on was something that I needed to adjust to. Um, so for in that sense, it was very difficult for me to both accept and act on the fact that this support system had kind of changed in the way that it um, what the way that I was able to rely on it. Um, and I think that that took me long enough to realize. And I think another thing that I didn't think would be as big of a problem was like, personally, I've had a lot of um, struggles with like, like eating issues. Um, I personally struggled with like an eating disorder for a couple of years in the middle as well. And that took a whole new kind of form in, in college, because now I had food around me all of the time. Um, and for me, like, I've had issues with controlling too much or controlling too little. Um, and since like, I lived in a, a building with a dining hall, I ended up rebuilding that fear of food that I had once um, had, um, something that I had fixed a lot through high school, it kind of all just kind of came rushing back. And there were a lot of old habits induced by anxiety or lack of control that I fell back into. Um, and so realizing that took me a lot longer. But it was nice that I did actually have a couple of friends at the University of Michigan with me um, that I kind of openly expressed that to. And being able to tell someone about it, I think, was a huge part in making me find a way to fix it or to approach the problem in a way where I knew I wasn't alone and I had other people that could kind of keep me accountable. So I think that going to college taught me that it's okay to tell people that you're struggling and to ask for help um, from people in a very vocal and very, um, I don't know, transparent way. Um, because like, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't as transparent, like throughout my middle school, my high school, anytime that I would struggle with mental health. But in college, I found that if I was able to verbalize it, then people would be able to help me and support me in a different way and in a better way too. One thing that I also wanted to ask was in terms of finding help for that, like how did you go about that? And in college, did you find support through your colleges, like uh, counseling and psychological services, or did you go elsewhere for that? Yeah. Um, so in terms of finding support, I didn't for a long time um, because it was very like a personal struggle for me. And and it, it was it was something I didn't even talk about with like my family or my closest friends. Um, but in my senior year of high school, I had a friend that kind of expressed a similar sentiment to me. And that was like a first time I, I really opened up about it. And I, I spoke about it for the first time. And I realized that that was quite relieving. Um and I think that was like the first time I even took a step towards like true recovery, not in the sense that um, I knew I had to recover, but I, I almost wanted it a little bit more. So I think like first, if it kind of seems daunting, maybe just talking to one person about it personally was, was very helpful, even if that wasn't a professional or an adult or someone that they always like, you know, in school, when you're learning about mental health, they tell you to reach out to someone like that you look up to, a mentor, a teacher, um, a parent, a guardian. But that's just, that's not always easy conversation to have, especially with the stigma related to weight loss, weight gain, um, food fear, all of that. In different cultures, it takes a very different form. So I would say if you can find just one person that you feel comfortable sharing somewhat of discomfort or mental struggles with, like that's, that's a good step in the right direction. But once I reached college, I realized that I had a lot more resources openly available to me, like the uh, counseling and psychological services, which was super helpful. I did actually schedule appointment with them. And I think the really great thing about what they did was they first listened. So they listened generally about like, what did I want to do? Where did I, where, where did I need help the most? Um, and they built a team around it. So they actually built, they gave me someone to talk to for general counseling, one person to talk to, um, that was a doctor checking in like, Hey, how are your vitals? Like, um, how much has restricting food hurt your body in some way and then one was a nutritionist that was like hey let's find a way to get you back to eating normally and not normal 
in the way that you see on Instagram or the way that people talk about like, oh, I just I just skip breakfast um, because that was never a normal thing for me. And it became a normal thing. Right. So finding a way for this nutritionist to help me kind of regulate that food. So the fact that I had like a whole team that was telling me that they were behind me and that there were very clear steps in front of me to kind of get to recovery or to, to continue recovery. That I think was the most tangible part of the process. Yeah, I feel like in terms of, at least at my college, seeking professional help through counseling and psychological services, like when they showed us the statistics about it, a lot of people go, but very few people talk about it. And there is such a stigma around that. But I was talking to someone else for this podcast, and she was saying that even though she desperately needed to go, she never did, not because she was afraid of what people would think, but just because she didn't have the time. So she kept prioritizing studying and other things. So I think it is really important to encourage people to do that for themselves. And I was also wondering if there are any misconceptions, I guess, about eating disorders that you wanted to dispel, or if there are just any things that people assume to be true that aren't necessarily true. Yeah. Um, firstly, kind of on what you said at the beginning, I think also at our school is very, it's not very stigmatized, but it is. Um, they talk about it at freshman orientation, but after that, no one really talks about going. Um, so I've tried to make an active, active effort about telling the people in my circles, like I went and like, that's that, that should be a normal thing that we can talk about. Um, but yeah, to your second point, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about, um, any kind of food-related fear, eating disorders, any anything similar in that arena, um, a lot. And, and when I say a lot, I, I mean it because it starts from things like eating disorders look the same on every person, which which isn't true, right? It can take it can take someone that might be um, on a higher body fat percentage. It can it can it can consume their mind. It can also consume the mind of someone that's incredible has an incredibly low body fat percentage. Um, so thinking about how we see people that are seen as thin in um, media and we say like, oh, like they are anorexic or, oh, they don't eat anything isn't potentially isn't true, right? They could have a binge eating disorder and you just wouldn't know. Um, and there's people on the completely opposite side of the scale where we, we talk about them as a society as being fat or obese or perpetuating um, like bad health, unhealthy habits, but you, you honestly don't know what's happening inside, right? They could have some autoimmune disease where they don't, they aren't able to take their body. They may be a completely normal person eating healthy and their body is just more comfortable at a larger size, right? So I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is that like, you have to look like stick thin to have an eating disorder. I think another thing would be that it manifests in every person the same way, um, which isn't true, right? Like, an eating disorder doesn't mean only restricting. It doesn't mean only cutting out all the foods you love. It doesn't mean only eating an apple a day. It can mean a lot of other things. It just means restric restric restriction from food in any potential way. So that could mean not eating that extra slice of cake, even though your brain and your body wants it. It could be not eating the entire meal, even though you know you're still hungry. It can be something as simple as drinking water when you're hungry to support suppress your appetite, which it's a, it's an unhealthy habit to have. And that took me a long time to un, like unlearn that habit because a lot of diet culture talk surrounds the idea of suppressing your appetite or not listening to what your body's cues are telling you. I think that kind of plays into the third myth, which is like that your body doesn't know itself, right? So when you kind of get lost in like the diet culture, eating disorder restriction realm, they're fitness influencers or people putting videos up on all social media platforms telling you what to do to suppress your appetite or to suppress your hunger, which kind of just goes against evolutionarily everything that our bodies have learned to do. So yeah, I would say the third myth is that we shouldn't like listen to our body's cues, right? Like people think that eating disorders mean that you kind of have a control over what you're doing, but it's mostly driven by that diet culture talk that's like, oh, you sh just shouldn't trust your body. And then I think just like all in all, like eating disorders don't take the same form in every person, right? Like one person could struggle with binge eating. One person could struggle with things like anorexia, which is severe restriction. Um, and then an entirely normalized now form of an eating disorder is what we, or like not we, but like what people refer to as orthorexia, which is just an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating or perfect eating. 
And I also wanted to ask you how you navigate social media, given that there is so much content being pushed out that promotes diet culture, as you said, and just in a way can promote negative body image. So yeah, I guess I have two questions there. One, how did you develop a positive body image? And how do you navigate that with social media? Because something that I was reading online is that in terms of recovery, developing that positive body image is often the last step or the hardest step for people. Yeah. So I think that was, like you said, kind of the the hardest and the longest step that I've had to take. Um, my recovery started as just like starting to eat more and started to normalize like three meals a day. Like that's what you should do. But when you start doing that, a lot of like the, the accounts that I once followed were things like, oh, you should do intermittent fasting for this reason. You should do keto for that reason. You should make sure that you eat, drink like two gallons of water a day for this reason. Um, or those kind of infographics that are like, if you're hungry, only eat these foods. Um, and I think navigating social media in that way is very, very tough because I think my recovery has been re- represented in the way that you can kind of see, if you can imagine like your Instagram explore page, right? Where you just, the, the longer you spend interacting with posts, the more those kinds of posts are going to arrive. So for me, it was realizing like before and after shots are an unhealthy thing to glamorize, right? Um, these posts about infographics about what fasts are good for you are an unhealthy thing to glamorize. And I started following accounts that really drove home the idea that healthy eating, that positive body image, that none of these things are the same for any two people. And so I started following more accounts that kind of sent the message that what is enough for me isn't enough for you. What your body looks like isn't the same as what my body looks like. And also listening to different podcasts that normalize eating enough food or eating when you're hungry or eating the foods that make you feel your best and really optimize your performance. And for me, that could be something like a piece of chocolate every day. Like that makes me happy, even if that's not the best thing for person A and person B and person C. Um, So that's definitely been tough because there's so many fitness influencers that really promote either their own eating, their own body, um, the way that they work out. They, They share a lot of this information in hopes to educate other people. But I think that sometimes what they forget is a lot of these people are still struggling with their relationship to food. And just to normalize eating and eating enough is kind of the first step um, in being like that good, positive influencer. So for me, like that took an actual tangible step. What, What I did was unfollowing any pages that showed before and after shots, whether that be gaining weight or losing weight. Um, because I think at that point, either way, you're still centering centering what the body looks like, right? So focusing on like that image of an individual. And then I would say like the last thing, I know there's like a lot of like, you should like love yourself and you should, you should feel loved and your body is perfect. And I do think that's like an important message to send, but I think it's also very tough for a lot of people. Um, So what I've done is I've tried to, instead of trying to take that big leap from I hate what I look like to I love and I like ideal that's my ideal body is what I look like right now instead what I do is just say like I have a body and my body does these things for me um and just normalizing not having positive or negative feelings feelings about my body um and that's something that I've I've kind of come into a little bit more recently it's called body neutrality so it's just like not feeling any specific way about your body, right? And just not centering that as your main focus for anything, whether it be, I love it or I hate it. That's just, it's just try not to have any feelings surrounding it and just know that my body does amazing things for me and my body carries me and I need to feel it because it does these amazing things for me from the day to day. Yeah, and to kind of go back to earlier, something that I just discovered was intuitive eating. Well, I guess I didn't just discover it, but I just started actually reading about it um, and learning about it. And for people listening, I guess my gist of the, the gist of what it means to me is that you just listen to what your body wants. You don't necessarily set restrictions in terms of, oh, I have to reach this many calories or I have to eat this many macros or even just like I have to eat at this set time a day, or like I can only have a cheat meal on this day or whatever. Um, And that's something that I've personally been trying to implement more, but I was wondering what tips or advice you had for anyone, specifically college students 
who are trying to, I guess, eat more intuitively um, and, and yeah, stop restricting. Yeah. So I think intuitive eating is like amazing because I think of when I was a child, like that's what I did, right? Like I ate when I was hungry and I stopped when I wasn't and my body knew what to do with itself. And, you know, I still had the energy to go run around the playground. Um, so I think it's a really cool thing that it's still like it's coming to light more and more de- these days. Um, but I think it's also very easily co-opted by um, diet culture. So it's very, it's a very tricky, tricky thing to manage um, because sometimes you'll see intuitive eating like fitness influencers, but at the end of the day, like they're only eating what they think is like healthy foods, right? Um, and that kind of def- defies the actual laws of what intuitive eating are. Um, and I, I couldn't tell you that I know like what the 10 basic principles of intuitive eating are, but I, the, the focus of it is like listening to your body and doing what it, your body feels like doing. Um, and it's also taking the pressure away from like, like you said, the calories and the, I need to stay at X weight. Um, so intuitive eating goes beyond just like what you're putting in, but it's also like, how does your body look? And you need to be okay with that, your body looking any size, right? Like whatever size ends up being where you kind of get your set weight or where you like end up once you start intuitive eating for a long time, like you have to be comfortable with that. And that kind of drives the force behind intuitive eating is trying no longer to control any aspect that's food, eating, body image related. Um, but if you want to jump into int- intuitive eating, I think that it's, 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 it's still a jump, especially for someone that like me is recovering from an eating disorder, because I think the first thing that you need to do in order to get to intuitive eating is to just start by listening to your hunger cues. And that can be extremely scary because for people like me that um, for a period of time are restricting and never stopped in a sense, um, it can be scary because you're kind of hungry all the time. Um, And your body is essentially being like, I don't know if I'm going to continue getting food or if I I don't know if I'm going to continue getting sufficient energy. So I'm just going to hold on to as much as I can or try to get as much as I can right now. So I think that if you're in recovery from an eating disorder where you either had any sense of restriction, whether that be restricting the food you eat, restricting the types of food you eat, going on a restrictive diet, um, or just not listening to what your body or your mind or your um, like physical self needed, um, then just starting by eating when you're hungry, even if that's a lot more than you're used to, um, that's like the first way to get there. So I think what happens is people try to get to intuitive eating and they're like, but I shouldn't be eating this much, right? Because they're for the first time in three, four, five years listening to their body's hunger cues. And they're like, well, this is because they know by then, like this is thousands of calories more than I would have eaten if I was still controlling my calories. Um, And that's what can be so scary about it. But I think that you have to, you have to want to at least take that first step towards eating enough and fueling your body no matter what you think it should be doing because your body is a lot smarter than any of these calculations, any of these calorie limits, any of these macro limits. Um, your body knows what it wants and your body's going to tell you, hey, I feel great after eating that. And if it's something that you're maybe like have a lactose intolerance and you drink milk, like your body's going to be like, no, that didn't sit well with me, right? Um, so just the first step I would say is just eat when you're hungry and um, don't eat when you're not, but you really do have to honor those hunger cues with no limits. And then you can kind of slowly get to that place where constantly what you're doing is intuitive eating. And it just, it it makes, I think, life a lot better um, when you're not constantly worried about hitting your macros or hitting your calories for that day. And I was also wondering if you wanted to ask the questions for Ariel, who is the psychologist that I'm talking to, because I'm going to, hopefully my producer will be able to like take your question and like insert it into the podcast, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think my only question would be like, what are some of the relationships they like that they've seen between um, eating disorders and anxiety? Because I feel as though for me, my social anxiety was kind of, it, it developed, I think, due to my eating disorder, or there might be some relationship there in sense of like control and stuff like that. Um, so I'd be really interested to learn the relationship that they've seen between those two things. And my last question is what advice or tips you have for people who may have friends that they think 
uh, are eating in a disordered manner or have eating disorders, like what would be helpful and then what would be like not helpful or even triggering for someone? Um, yeah, so I'll start with the not helpful. I think the not helpful is the, well, just eat mentality, right? Like that's never going to work um, because it's not about whether they can physically do it. It's about whether they can mentally do it. And though they might eat right now, like you don't know what they're going to do when they get home, right? The just just eat um, isn't going to help um, or the you need to eat a sandwich or a just stop eating light. Like if they're overweight and they say oh, like, oh, I want to lose weight, um, just be like, oh, like you just shouldn't eat like those things that commenting on anyone's food intake or that's just that's never going to be helpful. Um, and I highly recommend you don't try to do that with someone you think has an eating disorder or honestly anyone in general, because it could just lead to the onset of an eating disorder. Um, and then in terms of what is helpful, I think being very gentle and trying to understand um, how much their mind is fighting against their body um, is kind of how you need to approach the situation. And if it's something that they've never really vocalized to you, you have to be very careful because they might be struggling with it internally and it might not be something they want to talk about yet. But if you do think that it, it's getting to a point where they need to talk about it, um, you certainly should just appreciate or like approach it with a lot of care and say, I'm just really concerned and I want you to know that, that I'm here for you and that I'm, I'm ready to help you get any other help in any way you deem fit. Um, whether that be just like talking to a counselor, getting an app, right? Like nowadays there's, there are apps where you can talk to therapists. Um, so getting on that and finding a way to kind of get you in touch with someone that can help you. Um, that's going to be the best way to approach it, right? Because like I said before, eating disorders take different forms, different people, and it's never going to be, you're never going to know what exactly they're struggling or what exactly is going on in their head. So just finding a way for them to vocalize it to someone else um, that can better understand the psychology behind it or can better find a way to help them um, understand that that recovery is important and that that's something that they want in the long term is going to be the best way to approach it. But just be, as you would, very gentle with with how you approach it and make sure they know that you're coming from a place of a lot of care and a lot of love for like who they are and, and that you want them to live a long and healthy life. I mean, this is a long shot, but if there is anyone listening to this podcast that is struggling with something similar, like I'm always here to talk. I'm sure Ashley could give you my information if you reached out. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. I'm glad I could. And now let's hear what Arielle had to say. I wanted to transition to talking about eating disorders and the mental side of eating disorders, because I think that in, in researching for the episode, what I was learning is that while the effects are often physical and it deals with the body, it really is more of a mental battle. So I was wondering if you could talk about that, because I think that that's something that is misunderstood about eating disorders. It's not just a matter of eat less, eat more, stop doing this, stop doing that. Yeah. So, you know, like you said, eating disorders, there are certainly many different um, manifestations. Sometimes people eat more, sometimes people eat less. Um, sometimes you will eat the same amount, but might purge what they're eating. And the triggers for eating disorders or the causes can be really variable too. One thing we tend to see is pretty common is coming back to people trying to find a sense of control and that um, eating less restricting is one way to control or eating more, but then purging is another way to find some control. And so self-control, um, being overly conscientious about what you're doing and, and all of your behaviors and as, and then by extension, being very self-critical about that tends to be a pretty common, um, theme that we see across different expressions of, of eating disorders. This is part of the reason why um, some researchers are suggesting there is a lot of difficulty and perhaps a slight uptick in eating 
problems or difficulties during the pandemic because that is one way people might be trying to find control. To be clear, it's not like out of the blue, someone will develop an eating disorder. Eating disorders have genetic causes. There are other triggers and factors that someone would have to be susceptible with. But for those who have those susceptibility factors, something like the pandemic that is so out of their control might be that kind of icing on the cake to um, make their eating uh, more difficult to, to manage. And those certainly already with a disorder, this could be a, a really significant um, experience that would make managing their symptoms very difficult. And my guest mentioned that she was curious to know about the link between anxiety and eating disorders. And I looked it up and <laughs> it is common that yeah. people can experience those at the same time. So I was wondering why that is. And I guess my follow-up question is for people who are suffering right now or, or dealing with eating disorders of any kind, like what tips, I guess, do you have for them in terms of where to go next? Yeah, so anxiety and eating disorders certainly co-occur um, pretty frequently. A common link is what is a personality trait called negative affect, so feeling a lot of negative emotions and having difficulty managing those. Um, and so it's not surprising often that they, they go together. Again, not for everyone, but this is a, a common theme we tend to see. And so if someone feels really overwhelmed, particularly with a lot of worry and a lot of anxiety, one way to manage or control that might be to take control of their eating and do so in such an extreme way that results in, in a disordered eating. I think if someone is really dealing with difficulties, managing their eating in either direction, under or overeating, this is one area where you definitely want to seek professional help early. Because it's not only the psychological toll, but certainly the physical toll that um, can be taken by having difficulties managing nutrition appropriately. Um, so there are several different eating disorder clinics. Um, I know McLean Hospital in Boston just started one, and I know this because one of my best friends started it um, for overeating. And then McLean already had a, a great um, facility for people who were having difficulty with anorexia or, or under eating. Um, but again, you know, a starting place if someone's not in the Boston area would be to go to uh, the um, National uh, Eating Disorder Association website. They have a helpline. The helpline could also connect people to professionals in their areas. And sometimes it's a registered nurse who might just help with nutrition to start. Sometimes it's a psychologist who will help manage those anxieties. And what would be the ideal is to have a comprehensive team that manages both the physical and mental health portion. And that's not to say that people shouldn't seek help for depression or substance use early. But with eating disorders, we find that that's really important because of the nutritional aspect that tends to get disrupted. Yeah, my guests and I were also talking about how just the college culture can encourage negative or not negative, just unhealthy eating patterns, even if it isn't technically disordered, just like people talking about only eating one meal a day or not eating all day while they're studying or, or binge eating. Yes. Binge yeah. eating, eating very irregularly, or even just talking about uh, wanting to lose weight or wanting to diet or not eating all day before they go out for a night out or something like that. Yeah. I guess that was something that I didn't even really think about consciously until I saw a social media post that was addressing it. But in the adult world, is this as much of an issue as it is in the college world? I'm just curious. Yeah. So there are many adults who also deal with difficulties of body image and self-image. You know, we do tend to see that our emotions stabilize a little bit as we get older. You feel a little more confident in, and this is not true for everyone, but on the whole population wide, you do tend to see as you mature, you feel more self-secure. Again, there's certainly people that don't, and that's when they might end up um, dealing with a mental health problem that's related to their body or eating or depression or anxiety or substance use. Um, so I don't think the college students are so unique, but what is unique is that 
you are living in a bubble often with peers and you don't have as much control often of what you can eat when you can eat. So, you know, I can cook whatever I want. I could order whatever I want when I want it. But sometimes people are on the dining hall um, meal plan and that's really all the food they have access to. And some dining halls don't have the healthiest options. And so people might start gaining weight or sometimes people are involved in extracurriculars that occur during their normal dinner time. And so they really have to shift their you know, schedule substantially and eating very late at night is not healthy for anyone. So the college experience is unique in that there are some aspects that students don't have as much control over as adults um, or as we like to think we, we usually do. Um, and that's where going back to some of the planning and the scheduling can be helpful. And if you know you have a day where you, you know, can't have dinner till later, managing a snack earlier so you're not as hungry when you go to dinner, thinking about when you have lunch to try and offset some of that timing. And so it takes some effort. You know, I'm not saying it's just like you wake up and you you have a personal assistant who scheduled your day so perfectly. You have to, you know, certainly plan and, and think it through. But if this is something that someone feels consciously um, aware of, that it's something they might be struggling with, or they just want to manage. They're not struggling, but they just want to manage it. Um, planning and, and considering your schedule to work around those sensitive eating periods is, is one strategy. In addition to the emotion regulation strategies, we know that our eating is a lot harder to control when our emotions are out of control. So finding ways to manage your emotions, having positive experiences, having a break. And again, this could be 30 minutes or it could be a weekend off um, can be really important. Getting some sleep, which is also harder in college, um, but trying your best to do that. Managing drinking, because we know that could disrupt not only how we feel, but our sleep cycle and, and certainly what we eat, particularly if you're out partying with friends. So all of these become really interconnected. So it's really hard to say, here's one thing that will fix this one thing. It's basically, here are lots of different things that you consider. And if you do those, they will help with lots of different aspects of, of your life because really, much like CBT says, a lot of our thinking, our feelings, and our behaviors are all interconnected. And now here's Tyra, who talked with me about her mental health journey through undergrad and beyond. Hello, my name is Tyra and I attend um, Syracuse University's Master of Public Administration program. Um, my track is in International and Development Administration and I'm concentrating in Global Health and Conflict Studies. Uh, that being said, that's my professional roles, but in my free time, I love making Spotify playlists and dancing in front of my mirror. <laughs> so um, strong mental health to me, it can be encapsulated in a plethora of ways. Um, what strong mental health to me on Monday may mean something different to me on Tuesday. <laughs> I personally do hold on to the fact that mindfulness can help you ground in every present moment. But it can be hard to stay mindful in a lot of different scenarios. You know, if we're going to talk about mental health in this podcast, I think we have to humanize it a bit and acknowledge the fact that we are not perfect creatures. Um, we mess up sometimes and, you know, strong mental health can mean, hey, doing a daily check in for yourself, um, recognizing how, how much water you drink, recognizing if you actually took a deep breath during the day. Um, or it can mean looking around in your environment, acknowledging the greenery, acknowledging the people around you. Um, so I guess to me, it, it really depends on the day to day, but, um, it typically falls under the general theme of mindfulness. Um, I try to be mindful and I try my best to be mindful, but again, I'm not perfect. Nobody's really perfect. Um, but I realize when I stay grounded and I stay mindful, um, it just results in a better week for me. Um, again, some weeks are very busy. Some weeks you can't really catch a break, but if you can take at least five minutes to do some deep breathing, um, that could really help your, your state at the moment. So I wanted to know how quarantine and the pandemic has affected you mentally 
And if it has, are there any tips that you have for other young people in terms of navigating that and taking care of themselves right now? The pandemic has been extremely hard on my mental health. Um, But at the same time, this was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I don't think I would have been the person that I am today without the pandemic occurring. Um, It's crazy how this this amount of free time can really have you connect with yourself if you use it um, accordingly. I'm not saying that you have to use it to connect with your higher being and find out the meaning of life, but I really hope that people are reflecting not just on themselves, but their community and society as a whole. Uh, The quarantine has been hard for me because I've been forced to face my shadows. I've been forced to unpack and deconstruct things that I once normalized and I realize enough is enough. Um, If I'm trying to be enlightened, if I'm trying to lead the life that I I want to lead, I have to let go of this baggage and I have to let light in. And this quarantine, really, when you're alone and (laughs) you're sitting with your thoughts and you're journaling, it's, it's a whole other world. And Online classes are hectic, but it's a different type of vibe when you're taking classes online versus in person. In person, you got to walk to a place and and plan to to leave your home at a certain time. And with online classes, you open Zoom um, at the time that the class starts and you just have all this time at your house alone. Um, so it's it's impacted me in a plethora of ways, first negatively. Um, because I personally had family members um, be affected by this pandemic. Um, It's affected me um, personally, um, mentally, uh, because with the onslaught of the pandemic came um, the resurgence of the um, Black Lives Matter movement as a reaction to publicized murders of Black individuals at the hand of Um, American police institution. So I've been protesting and that has been very hard on my mental health. Um, But in a way, it's it's weird. It's a juxtaposition because it's been hard on my mental health, but it's also been feeding my soul. And I just couldn't have ever imagined (laughs) the amount of growth that I endured during this quarantine and I'm really looking forward to to the future. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Hell, I'm, I'm looking forward to later today um, because the growth is astronomical. <laughs> um, and tips that I have for other young, young people in terms of taking care of themselves right now. It's hard because before I talk to young people, I also have to talk about um, the disparities that people face when attempting to access mental health resources. Um, You know, I obviously want to say, yeah, go to yoga and go to a therapist. But, you know, the yogi community in the United States is comprised of approximately 80% um, white individuals. So a lot of bi POC young people um, may feel a disconnect or may feel like their healing um, may not be as um, grand because they don't want to feel othered in a place of healing. Um, Also, you know, I I read that 86% of psychologists um, are white. And I think I got the statistic from the American Psychological Association. So again, a lot of BIPOC young people um, really want to go see a counselor, psychologist, a therapist that looks like them, that may understand um, and resonate with their life experiences even more so. So, you know, I do want to say do yoga and go to therapy, but I understand the barriers um, 
just emotionally and also financially that young people have. I guess the one thing that I will say is go out into nature, you know. Um, sure, there are quarantines in many states, but I don't think going on a nature walk um, is bad for um, the spread of COVID. I think that this can also um, exponentially help your mental health. Nature is the easiest way, the easiest way to be grounded. And it's free and it's right outside and it's summer. Um, just spending five minutes, 10 minutes breathing the air outside can, can really help your case. Um, if you are in a location that does not suffer with air pollution, I will say, um, it's very hard because I am currently trying to figure out ways to take care of myself as well. Um, but I, I really just push on the nature, the nature route and also being mindful of how much water you're drinking. It's the little things, being mindful of how much you're sleeping every day, being mindful of your food intake, maybe getting some baby spinach <laughs> in the, in your mix of food or something. Uh, it's hard and I'm still working it out. I definitely don't have all the answers, but we can do it day by day, hour by hour. I'd also like to dive into the topic of anxiety and academic stress because they've been common threads in most of my interviews and also in my own life. Um, so yeah, my question for you is, have you experienced this and how did you learn to deal with that and cope in a healthy way? Oh, man. <laughs> Anxiety and academic stress. So let's get started. Um, so as an, um, as an undergrad, I was actually a pre-med student up until um, my third year of college. That being said, I was under complete and utter stress. It was ridiculous. And I recognized also um, things adding into my stress just was um, surrounding my academic track and how I wanted to explore even more things. So, I mean, it's not an easy answer because I can't sit here and tell everyone, well, reevaluate your whole life and change your track. No, because, you know, you could still be stressed out in your track, but really evaluate. Why am I so stressed right now? Um, do I need to drop something? Do I need to do I need to tweak my classes for next semester? Is this helping me achieve my higher goals um, in life, like for real, your higher goals that your higher being is pushing you towards. I definitely do still suffer with academic stress. However, it's at a down, it's, it's, a, it's at a downfall. The curve is going down. It's not that serious for me anymore because I learned how to balance out and put a barrier on school, unfortunately. Um, in these American institutions and even global academic institutions, there's the expectation of um, getting good grades and this grade will help you get a good job and or maybe go to even further grad school, et cetera, et cetera. But I try to put a boundary on academics and understand why I'm doing it in the first place. How is this helping me achieve what I want to achieve um, for my higher goals and higher being? And take it one step at a time. I think um, academic stress and anxiety can become very uh, overpowering when you think about the future and you think too far into the future. And it's, it's overwhelming. So I think I just had to say, you know what? I, I can't think about this essay. Like, I'll, I'll think about it in four hours or tomorrow, but I can't think about it now. <laughs> I think that a lot of college students think that prioritizing their mental health or seeking professional help isn't feasible, whether it's because of time or financial constraints or just not feeling comfortable in those settings because of their backgrounds and all of that. So are there any resources that you found that you recommend? 
I love this question because I'm actually writing a brief for the Learner Center about this. You know, I think especially for BIPOC students, especially those who um, come from low-income backgrounds, many are faced with the challenges of having to choose whether they should spend their free time going to an on-campus event or clocking in an extra hour at their work-study position, you know? And I think that colleges um, are trying to do certain initiatives. I know at Syracuse, there's an app called Sanvelo, and they made it free for all SU students, any student who has an SU ID. Um, however, I think it's important to offer more than one app for students in the case that they prefer the interface or objectives of another popular app. In addition, I think podcasts like these can um, really help students on the go, students who may not be able to attend um, in-person events. And for me, I think also pushing and recommending um, certain practices that students can do on their own time at home. I know for me, I had to go on YouTube and find different yogi instructors um, <laughs> to really pass my time. And, you know, I had to do that myself. And this is this has helped me improve my mental health tenfold. And I can only imagine if more people had access to these users um, and the change that would come because of that exposure. So thinking about the question again, um, Resources that I recommend, I recommend Sanvelo, but you know, you don't really need a fancy app um, to be mindful. You can just get a journal and journal out your thoughts. I know a lot of people have problems um, when they first journal. It's weird because you have to talk to yourself and a lot of people recognize that they haven't talked to themselves their whole lives. Um, but journaling doesn't have to be like school. You're literally, quite literally, um, writing out the inner mechanisms and workings of your brain. I also know that um, Instagram accounts, um, I follow so many mindfulness um, Instagram accounts. They put out quotes each day. I know in particular, I love the account We The Urban. I just feel like each time they put out a post, it just sits with me really well. Um, and it's a daily dose of affirmation that I need to hear because I still suffer with imposter syndrome um, along with many of my other peers. So I love following these Instagram accounts to be my free therapist. I also love Tumblr um, accounts. I know, you know, Tumblr is a little outdated, but if you go back on it, there's so many amazing mindfulness blogs and mental health blogs. Yeah, and lastly, I just wanted to know if there's anything that you'd like to add. You know, life is a journey, for real. And it sounds very cliche, life is a journey, but it truly is. You learn about yourself each day, the more mindful that you are. Um, you don't want to be a drone. You want to be aware of your surroundings, aware of yourself, aware of your reactions um, in order to grow as a person. And this mental health thing is always going to be... Um, evolving even when you're 50 years old you're gonna learn new things about yourself but you will be doing yourself a disservice if you don't just sit down and think about your present moment because again when you're 50 you'll say damn life just passed by me in a blink of an eye and I would hate to be in that position and as young people we want to enjoy and be selfish in our 20s. This is the most amazing time of our lives. Um, whether we acknowledge it or not, we want to be able to do as much as we can. And in order to do so, I really want to push on the mindfulness factor and the benefits that it can have for you personally. And here's what Ariel had to say about that. And I also wanted to talk about the upcoming school year and the fall semester because for me personally, it's just been such a roller coaster of emotions. Um, I think at first I didn't have any issue with 
well, I was not excited about it, but I was very accepting of the fact that I would probably have to do Zoom university in the fall. Like I just, I remember in April or so, I was like, yeah, this probably isn't going to be better by then. And I guess it just seemed so distant in my mind that I wasn't fully processing it. And then I think it was about a month ago now, I got an email from my university president completely solidifying that I, in fact, would not be back on campus. And all of a sudden, everything was horrible. <laughs> like, I felt terrible. I was telling Elise that it felt like, I think we both felt this way. Like, it just came out of nowhere. We were sad. And there was also an anger at the fact that we felt like a part of our lives were being stolen from us. And, but then also just like a sadness and that like the world is even going through this. But then I guess the biggest part is just the grief aspect to it, which I didn't necessarily expect, like grieving, um, like memories that never happened. So I was wondering if you could talk about why that happens. And I was also wondering if you had any advice for college kids out there that are in peril. Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is us faculty are right there with you. So it's not just the students who experience a sense of loss or grief once we've gotten the final announcements and who feel overwhelmed by, you know, having to do everything. And I would say probably less than excited about having to do everything over Zoom. Um, and so sometimes misery can appreciate company. And I think not seeing yourself as all that different from the faculty, even if we try and put on a brave face, um, can be really positive. But that being said, we don't want to dwell on, on the negative feelings and be paralyzed by it. So I think there are a few different strategies. Um, you already mentioned kind of acceptance, and, and this is a big part of a grief process that we would talk about. And I think it's reasonable to consider not being able to have a normal school year or semester be a loss that, that we're experiencing and, and we need to grieve. And so with acceptance, again, we don't want to lie to ourselves and say it's all okay. Like you don't want to push away the negative emotions. You just kind of want to say, you know, it is what it is. Now what can I do? So you want to accept not judge and kind of move on to a more active mode. And what you can do can be really different for different people. Um, maybe people think of adding on a volunteer activity that's only online. So doing some tutoring, because we know a lot of high school students are in this similar position. There are a lot of these online tutoring options now. Um, I'm an alum of Brown University. That's where I went for undergrad. And a lot of the undergrads are getting connected with high school students in the area to tutor them online as a way to feel like they're helping someone at, through this semester. Um, you can build structure to your day. I think every single person should do their calendars, get up out of bed for the day, take a shower, pretend like you're going to class, get dressed for that, um, and build your day as if it was, you know, kind of a normal day with just obviously the, the differences in structure. Because we know that staying in our pajamas all day on you know, bathed is, is not good for our mental health, much less our, if we have any roommates or anyone that, that we're living with. Um, and then there are a variety of activities that could help us accept. So how we get through these distressing moments. Um, again, that could be planning pleasurable activities, um, saving up. I know you and Elise had your like movie dates I heard you talk about or something where, oh no, Elise would go to the movies every, um, every single uh, weekend. So doing something like that, something to look forward to that's outside of, of class. Um, finding a way to challenge yourself to look for something new or exciting in the class um, can be, you know, again, you're accepting it's not the same. Well, what is a way that I can um, find the, the positive or the pleasure in that? Um, and so I think it really kind of comes down to figuring out what part of the loss is maybe most upsetting for each individual. So for me, the structure and being able to connect, like I really loved being able to stand in front of class and after class have students come up and, you know, chat with me and tell me about their lives. And so I just have to think creatively to find ways to structure my day um, so that I feel excited for class and also recreate, although not replicate those types of experiences. And so I think for you and, and all of the students do the same process 
process. What is it that you think you'll really miss the most? And how can you try and address that either by accepting and managing or some of this recreation? And earlier you mentioned self-care, which is a term that I feel like I see so much on social media and Twitter and everyone interprets it so differently. Like I know for some people, self-care is like the, the common trope is like a face mask or something. And I'm someone that hates face masks. So for me, like that isn't self-care. So is there like a, an actual definition of it or is self-care just more like what makes you happy? Yeah, so there's not a formal definition or there's not one thing. What we typically talk about self-care is meeting your basic needs. Um, so this is why in the past when I talked about self-care, I gave examples like showering or brushing your teeth or getting dressed or eating or sleeping. Those are basic needs that you need to be able to function. And those are often the things we forget to do well first when we're feeling stressed or overwhelmed. Like when you have a really big test to study for, you're not thinking about managing your sleep. You're thinking about pulling an all-nighter. Um, so sometimes people, particularly from like a wellness perspective, will talk about self-care, like creating a spa day for yourself. And, and that can be one person's form of self-care. From a more you know, psychological, formal perspective, it's whatever the basic need is. Um, and then you can make that something that you also enjoy. So treating yourself to um, your favorite ice cream or something like that can be a form of both self-care and, and pleasure. I will also say self-care doesn't mean like when you're feeling overwhelmed, focus on yourself and don't complete your commitments. So this is something that a lot of students will talk to me about is that they feel like faculty or their advisors are saying, do self-care, but also don't miss a deadline. And, and actually, we mean that. Um, you know, If reasonable, you need to follow through with your commitments, but each day find ways to take some time for yourself to meet the basic needs. And, and time, again, could be one, two, 10 minutes. And often what we talk about is not more than two hours for any activity, whether it's self-care or work. So having structure and flexibility in your day to be able to meet the different demands that you've committed to. And if you find yourself feeling feely, really feeling overwhelmed day after day, well, then that's when you might take a bit of a break or a vacation, but it should be planned and thoughtful and not just reacting out of feeling underwater. And I was also wondering if you just had any general advice for anyone listening or anything else that you wanted to add that I did not get to. I think my best advice would be to find the things you really enjoy that could work in different situations. So I don't know what it is, but I really love Real Housewives. It is my favorite show. It is, I get it, trashy. I get it. I'm a Ivy League, you know, faculty member and I shouldn't care about these things, but I do and it brings me joy. And so I make sure to find time to watch my favorite cities every single week. But I also have experienced power outages recently. So what happens when I have no power and making sure I have backup plans for those types of um, pleasure activities? Because when you're feeling overwhelmed, you want to be able to access your coping strategies. So I would encourage everyone to take some time to create a list of their go-to coping strategies that bring them joy and anticipate when something might not be able to work because you have no power, because you can't be around friends and have some backup options. And that could be different for every single person. Not everyone has to watch Real Housewives. That's not my homework for you. I love Real Housewives. I haven't watched it in a while. My favorite, um, not branch, what is it called? Uh, I guess city. city. Yeah. yeah, my favorite city is Atlanta, but I also really used to enjoy Orange County. I haven't watched that in a while, though, so I would not know who's on there. Or maybe Beverly Hills, I think. I would always try to get Elise to watch Beverly Hills, and she claimed that they were boring. It's <laughs> like, no. She should not be bored by them. There are so many examples of the things that we study in lab. It should be a practice for her to be able to, to watch some of these shows. Oh, and my last question is for people who have friends who just are suffering in general, like what is helpful for, yeah, like helping those friends and what is not helpful? Because I think that, you know, 
when people express their negative emotions, sometimes friends can unknowingly trivialize it or just say, oh, things will get better or you'll be okay, which I don't think actually is helpful whatsoever. (laughs) Um, So yeah, what should we do? I think the first step is to actually ask the person what you should do. I know that doesn't feel great all the time because you want to problem solve. You want to help your friend who is in distress, but everyone can be really different. So I'm someone where I'm expressing my negative emotions. I actually just want someone to listen. I don't want them to problem solve. I probably know how to solve the problem, but I need to vent. I need to let it off my chest. But I have other friends where they actually want someone to help problem solve. And so I think step one, ask them, what can I do to help? Or what would you like me to do in this, you know, in this situation or with what you're having difficulty with? And be willing to follow through, obviously, with what they're asking of you. Now, certainly there can be situations where someone says, I just want you to leave me alone. And you know that that's not right because they've had times of maybe expressing suicidality or being really overwhelmed. And that's where you might be able to be more direct and say, well, I can't do that, but what else can I do? I think it's really important to remember you should never be your friend's therapist. So if you're finding yourself actually getting into therapist mode, that's a sign that you should suggest to the friend that maybe they should reach out to some of those hotlines that we talked about or go to the mental health resource center or or whatever it might be in in their area for them. So we always want to be supportive. We always want to help. But if it gets the level of, you know, everyone being an armchair therapist, that's when it's best to, to turn to some professional support. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Figuring It Out. This mental health series was probably my favorite thing that we've done on the podcast, mainly because these conversations actually help me a lot. So I hope that you got something out of them as well. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Figuring It Out Pod. And we're also on Twitter at The Figuring It Out Pod. Thanks for listening along as I try to figure things out. I appreciate you and I'll talk to you soon.